This is part two of my interview with Jeffrey Siegel, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Medical Justice. Dr. Siegel is a board-certified neurosurgeon, and he was a practicing neurosurgeon for 10 years, during which time he also played an active role as a participant on various state-sanctioned medical review panels designed to decrease the incidence of meritless medical malpractice cases. We start this part discussing what services are provided by medical justice, and then discuss the National Practitioner Data Bank, including its origins, and how to stay out of the data bank, and also how to utilize arbitration. Do you feel overwhelmed by all of your different responsibilities as a partner, parent, and physician? Do you feel burned out or stressed out? If so, we want you to know that there is hope. Professional coaching for doctors has been shown to improve all of these problems. And right now, the Alpha Coaching Experience, a coaching program meant specifically for busy physicians who want to build a life they love and deserve, is open for enrollment. As part of the Fall Alpha Coaching Experience, We want to invite you to a free webinar being taught by Dr. Jimmy Turner over at The Physician Philosopher. The webinar is called Defeat Burnout Without Leaving Medicine. You can register for this free webinar by visiting thephysicianphilosopher.com slash webinar. There are only three webinars and the last one is on November 1st. So don't miss out on getting some free teaching on how to coach yourself to become the best partner, parent, and physician you can be. Visit thephysicianphilosopher.com slash webinar for more information. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. So let's talk a little more about medical justice. So I've got, I got, I've got some questions. Is there any way of counterfiling a suit, at least to recoup legal fees, against a plaintiff for filing a patently frivolous lawsuit? Either at the state level, if you can't do it at the state level, is there any way to file at the federal level? Is, that, is this one way of putting the fear in your potential... I don't know, enemies, if that's how we think. We tell doctors that if you're doing it for the money, don't do it because you've already gone through a long case and now you're going to be taking additional risk and and make your case even longer. So if you're doing it for the money, not a great idea. There There certainly are legal theories that allow you to proceed. We use a couple of interesting theories where the doctor has the patient sign an agreement and we would recommend, and in fact, we're strong believers in arbitration. We can talk about that in just a few minutes um, where they agree that the expert will be board certified in your specialty and a member in good standing of your professional society and follows a code of ethics. So this is a document, the contract, the patient signs and holds them and their attorney to a particular process. If, for example, the other side brings on a hired gun who delivers testimony that his colleagues believe to be beyond the pale, the first step is to go after that expert or actually just hold them accountable. In the professional society, most of the major, certainly the surgical specialty societies, have had for many years professional conduct committee where they expect certain norms in behavior for expert witness testimony. It's not designed to keep experts from testifying. It's designed to just make sure that if someone's going to be opining on the standard of care, that it 
describes what a majority or respectable minority in the field would say and not just say something because you're getting paid for it. So the first step is to see whether um, that professional conduct committee agrees. If, if they do, then we then go back and say, remember that document that you signed? It said that your expert would uphold the ethical principles of being an expert in that professional society, and his peers said, no, he did not. So you're in breach of contract, et cetera, et cetera. So the legal theory is breach of contract. But re remember, the goal here is not to get wealthy. It's designed to propel experts to just deliver the truth. If they'll deliver the truth and the case has no merit, the case has nowhere to go. Frivolous lawsuits are propelled by frivolous testimony. And the goal is really to just try and get everybody to tell the truth and the case will find its natural, or it should find its natural outcome. It was a long-winded way of probably not answering you directly, but, <laughs> but the answer is yes. There are ways to file countersuits and counterclaims, and there are long processes to do it, and there are various legal theories to make it happen. Um, I do want, I do try to temper expectations with physicians. You don't do it for the money; you do it to seek justice and ultimately make the system a little bit better. And by and large, if the system gets better, then hopefully down the road, you will not be in the receiving end uh, of a similar suit. Well, if you're, if you're a member of a large enough practice or a large enough hospital system where they have a habit of doing this, I would think it would help the system to sort itself out, right? Because if you're in the habit of putting money towards counterfiling for frivolous lawsuits, well, then that's going to put a little fear in the plaintiff and the expert witness that might reconsider a case that they were planning on pursuing and say, you know what? I really don't think this is much merit because we're taking it against this entity, right? And I know they have a habit of counterfiling for frivolous lawsuits. This might be perceived as frivolous and this, is, uh, this, this could end up badly for us. So yeah, it's, it's a way of sorting the system out. Yeah, it's holding proponents of frivolous litigation accountable in any venue. It doesn't matter whether it's a countersuit for money, whether you're filing a claim against an attorney in the state bar, whether you're going after the doctor's license for perjuring himself when he said he was board certified or not. All of these are disincentives to engage in that same behavior going forward. Um, it is not dissimilar to the beware of dog sign. Burglar comes to three houses sees one, saw, one sign that says, beware of dog. You can take his chances. It may be that it's just a chihuahua, okay? But on the other hand, it may be that it's a vicious pit bull with rabies. Which house do you go into if you're the burglar? Well, maybe the other house. So um, I think countersuits and counterclaims, if you get into the habit of, of engaging in the offensive type of behavior, which is what we do, the attorneys who don't know what they don't know will then go elsewhere. Love it. I love it. And it's a, it's a way to help correct some flaws in, in the system. You know, it's, a, it's goodwill <laughs> when medical justice. Yes, when flaws justice. in the system, there are many. Our goal is to do our small part, just to hold it more accountable and have it, you know, it's funny. And other countries, uh, the United Kingdom, for example, it's a loser pay system meaning that everybody can get, now it's, it's not exactly loser pay, but it's close to it, meaning each side hires their own attorney. And if you, the plaintiff, lose, 
you're responsible for the other side's fees. Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, if, if then, then those attorneys, if they stand to lose more, not only are they going to have to, they're, they're not going to get paid themselves, but they might have to pay into or contribute to what the other side, it costs the other side. Now they're, they're going to hedge their bets a bit differently. Right now, if you have a 60% chance of winning a million-dollar case, well, now it might be that you need to have a 90% chance of winning a million-dollar case because otherwise the gamble just isn't worth it. Yeah, the end result is that it becomes an opportunity cost. You have to figure out, is it worth going out? And right now, with the American system, you get a free bite at the apple. The worst-case scenario, typically for a plaintiff, is that whatever whatever it costs them to pay for experts, do depositions, et cetera, well, that's a sunk cost. They won't get that back. Uh, But they don't have to pay the other side's attorney's fees. Now, imagine if we had the British system, not the American system, you'd still lose your sunk cost for expert witnesses, depositions, et cetera. You'd also be responsible for the other side's legal cost. Yeah, and you'd probably do a better job of screening cases, filtering them. And my educated guess is that cases would probably be settled because you would be only be taking better cases. So in a sense, what it would cost you to propel a case going forward may actually go down if you picked cases better. So there's a lot, there's a lot to be said for the British system. I'm sure there are things about it that make little sense uh, to a plaintiff, but um, I, I can certainly say from a physician's vantage point why it might be attractive. So you, you mentioned before you wanted to talk about arbitration. Can you go into some detail about that? Yeah. So let's talk about arbitration. Arbitration has been around for at least 100 years, and it's based on a federal law, Federal Arbitration Act, which said we'd like to figure out how to solve disputes. And arbitration is a private form. You're giving up your right Uh, to a trial by jury based on a contractual agreement between the two parties to engage in the arbitration system. And there are many ways to do arbitration. There are national arbitration societies, AAA, I think is one of them, but that's not the only one. There are plenty of them. And they, they follow state law, but it's a private setting, confidential. So whatever the ruling is, it can be held to be confidential. It's not in the public limelight. And it's typically unappealable, meaning once they get to a particular outcome, when you're done, you're done. It's also often cheaper. So I'm a fan of arbitration. The reason I like arbitration is because each side can constrain upfront who the experts are. When I say who they are, meaning that they, they, we can constrain them to be accountable and reputable. So let me give an example. If you have the document up front, which says that we're going to agree to arbitration, and by arbitration, I mean we're each giving up our right to a trial by jury, not appealable, um, it's going to be confidential, but the benefits would be faster and cheaper, et cetera, et cetera. And um, each side will use as experts those who are board certified in your specialty, for example, ENT, and uh, perhaps are members in good standing of your professional society, whatever that may be. Um, so you're constraining the universe to people that you believe are, are reputable. Now, what does that mean? It means that you're going to eliminate from the pool 
those who may have been expelled from their professional society, that handful who have been, I'll use the word convicted, of delivering frivolous testimony. So in my particular case, if I could have constrained who the expert was to those who were members in good standing of our professional society, I would have loved to have done that because there was only one expert who stepped up to testify against me. And it actually, he had already been expelled from our professional society precisely for delivering frivolous testimony. So if I had had enough foresight to implement that arbitration agreement I was talking about, I could have foreclosed that one expert from being the expert. And who knows, I likely would never have been been sued. So federal arbitration is a way to trump many aspects of state law. I, I can tell you plaintiff attorneys generally hate arbitration. They don't get to present their case in front of a jury. They'll fight tooth and nail to say that the patient didn't know what they were getting into when they signed this agreement. So there are various formalities you need to pay attention to for arbitration to work. For so example, then how do you get into it? If the plaintiff's attorney is going to get it, get into, uh, be against it, how, at what stage do you, I mean, is this something that we can have all of our patients sign when they walk in the door? Yes. Because they do this in other industries, right? Like I think maybe when you're, when you click yes on, I agree to the operating systems on my iPhone, like you're agreeing to arbitration. You can't sue Exactly. Them. So, yes. so is there, we can have all of our patients just sign this. You just have all of your elective patients sign it up front when they see you and it needs to be reasonable. So yeah. let me describe what is and what is not reasonable. It needs to be something that you would sign if you were the patient. So if you're being wheeled on a gurney to the operating room urgently and the propofol's starting to work its way into your veins, probably not a great time to first present the arbitration agreement, okay? Because, I mean, they would have signed it, if anything, under duress. And in a better situation, you'd probably send the arbitration agreement out to the patient in advance. And they get something out of it too. It's not as if you're the only beneficiary. Each side gets something out of it. It could I mean, like be- like the high-low agreement. Yeah, I mean, every, everybody's benefit. It's got everybody's, you give to get, everybody benefits from it. I mean, the truth is, um, as I just described with, our, with uh, litigation, if it's a low value claim, the likelihood of an attorney even finding, going to support you is low. It's not zero, but it's low. So arbitration cuts the cost of entry and makes it easier for a patient to potentially have a case heard. So everybody gets something out of it. So I still uh-huh. don't understand though, when, because if they've, because usually when we get contacted, it's by a plaintiff's attorney because they're, they're collecting Oh, yeah. Records. Now, you do it well in advance. You do it when the patient first sees you, when they say, I'm interested in seeing Dr. Block. Great. Here's our welcome packet. Oh, Here's- so it's on, on a laundry list of other stuff that they have to sign. Exactly. But you want to follow. The, you, um, there are a number of processes that you need to follow. It, needs, it can't be a one-sided agreement where all the cards are stacked in your favor. It has to be reasonable, but you know, a lot right. of times with, these, with all the stuff that they need to sign, like yep. we agree to send your records to the insurance company because they, you know, they're exactly. the ones that are going to be paying us. We agree to yep. pay any fees that aren't covered by the insurance company. We agree to, you know, they're agreeing to a lot and they just want to get in to see the doctor. So they're just right. sign, 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 kind of like, my iPhone agreement. I just want to send a text message. Please get this stuff out of my way. Yes, 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 yes. But the more it appears that they had a reasonable choice, the more likely it will withstand any attempt by a plaintiff attorney to try and break it down. As an example, if you mail it to the patient in advance and give them a week to review it, they may or may not even review it. But if you gave them a week to review it, 
that's a checkbox in your favor for it withstanding scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And you could actually include a statement that says you can uh, rescind your approval or your consent to arbitrate three days after you sign it. So you give them a little window of time to change their mind. To And the truth is very few people do change their mind. But if you gave them the option to change their mind, then again, that's another box in the favor. It's going to be hard for an attorney to attack it. Uh, attorneys try to attack arbitration all the time. They can't attack it on the on the substance. So they go over, they try to attack the process, meaning that the patient didn't know what they were getting into. The simpler the language, the easier it is to read, more likely it will withstand scrutiny. So there are not, I wouldn't say download an arbitration agreement from legal Zoom. <laughs> I would say work on this with someone who really understands the arbitration space. We do have arbitration like agreements. Jeff Siegel. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Now, not every state looks swimmingly on it, but by and large, this has been litigated over the past 100 years, and most of the time, including several Supreme Court cases, the person who pushed the arbitration agreement has prevailed. I know that there is a state law in California stating that if it's a health care agreement, the patient needs, you must give the patient 30 days to rescind. Well, we know a physician who said, well, that doesn't comport with the Federal Arbitration Act and federal law trumps state law. And this ended up in an appellate court in California and they ruled for the doctor. They said, I don't know why you're carving out healthcare in 30 days. Why are you treating healthcare any differently? That doesn't seem to comport with the Federal Arbitration Act. You, the patient, lose. You, the doctor, win. So states have tried to chip away at it, usually unsuccessfully. Arbitration has been around for 100 years. There are Supreme Court precedents and likely to be with us for another 100 years. And it seems like it's in the legal system's best interest because then they get to outsource it, right? They don't have to pay for it. It doesn't go before a judge. It doesn't go before a jury. And all that stuff is very expensive. That, yeah, it's funny. That's exactly what the judges say, the federal judges, when they're describing why the Federal Arbitration Act was even implemented. They said they want people to solve their disputes. And anything <laughs> that makes it easier to solve a dispute should be looked at with favor. The litigation system, you know, the status quo litigation system is expensive, time-consuming, adversarial. And if everybody has access to it, then the process is going to be slow because everybody's trying to squeeze in. If there's an alternative way to mediate disputes and arbitration has withstood the test of time, then judges look upon it with favor. Plaintiff attorneys, not so much, but judges, certainly, yes. Can you give this? This I didn't put in in the list of questions. So hopefully you've got something juicy for me. Can you give me an example of medical justice being served against an expert witness? I'll give you a great example. And we've got plenty, but this is one that comes to mind. So there was a young woman and just had a tragic outcome. And she was approximately 30 years old, went into ventricular uh, VTAC, don't know why precisely, but she was, um, when the EMTs came out, she was in a systole and they did CPR, brought her to the uh, emergency room. And they worked on her for about 30 minutes, just trying to get any rhythm whatsoever, got nothing. So she came in to the hospital in a systole, she had been in a systole, undergoing CPR though, 
uh, on the way to the hospital, and then they pronounced her dead. One of the lab results in the emergency room was potassium level that was 12, so it was high. And a plaintiff attorney filed a lawsuit against the ER doctor, among other people. I mean, they sued everyone. The allegation against the ER doctor was that he missed hyperkalemia, a level of 12. And because of that, the patient had a had the bad rhythm and ultimately went into a systole and, and died. Well, the, the true facts were that the patient was dead on arrival, had already started decomposing, to, to, be, to be blunt about it. And the potassium were just the cells opening up and spitting out the internal contents. So it wasn't the cause, it was an effect. <laughs> we sent a letter to the plaintiff attorney saying that Dr. John Doe is a medical, medical justice. He has up to 100K to file countersuits and counterclaims. Have a nice day. We didn't, we didn't even make the statement that the hyperkalemia was due to the patient decomposing. But any, in any event, one week later, the case was dismissed. And he, the guy attributed it to it, said, look, um, it looked like I jumped the gun on this. And he did. I think he was looking for a quick settlement. And look, the whole story is just tragic. This is a young person, a woman in her 30s who's now deceased. But it really had nothing to do with the doctor uh, at all. The family wanted answers. They went to an attorney. And we were able to help get that case dismissed quickly within a week. Not all cases get dismissed so quickly, but that was um, a case where we were involved quite early. I was hoping for something where justice was served against an expert, like someone gave frivolous testimony and then you you worked your magic. Well, typically what happened after the case is over. I don't want to get too much into the weeds on any particular case, primarily because when cases are filed in the professional conduct committees and the professional societies, by design, they are intended to be confidential unless and until discipline takes place. But to to protect our clients, our members, uh, they're the ones that have to be the ones to publicize it. I can't do it um, without their permission. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So just in, in parting, what is one bit of advice you would give to your pre-attending self or, or post-attending pre-law school self? now that you've been doing this for a while? Oh, well, I think early, yes. What I would have done would have been to seek guidance and counsel in the other aspects of medicine that I knew nothing about. And I think we talked briefly off the air what it's like in training. When you're training, you've got mostly, you've got two full-time jobs. You're learning how to diagnose. You're learning how to treat if you're a surgeon. You're learning how to operate both of those are full-time jobs. They're consuming. You become obsessed with mastering those details. And even when you graduate, you're still just beginning lifelong learning. So a lot to think about. What we learn nothing about in medical school, residency, or fellowship, or at least I didn't, was anything related to the medical legal world. I learned nothing about the business of medicine. I learned nothing about finance and how to invest. I learned nothing about insurance. I wish someone had just spent a day on each of those topics with me. Or more importantly, I wish I'd been exposed to really talented professionals so that they could be my partners going forward. I think most doctors eventually do pick up 
these nuances. I mean, we, we think we know everything and that we could just Google it and, and get it right. But it's just not a great use of our time. I'm certain that if I invested 10,000 hours into learning the tax code, I'd be as good as my accountant, okay? Well, maybe not even as good, but I'd have, but I'd have to spend a minimum 10,000 hours to, to even play in the same ballpark as him. That's a, that's a horrible waste of my time. I, if you're a surgeon, you make money in the operating room. If you're a diagnostician, you make money seeing patients. And that's where your talent is best used. It's not best used mowing your lawn. It's not best used learning how to do your taxes. It's not best used learning how to be the best possible investment advisor. Um, so I think, in short, find talented seasoned professionals. They become your partners for life. If, if they're really good, you'll stay with them for 30, 40, and 50 years. Thank you, because I think that was a great plug for the Physician's Guide to Doctoring podcast, which everyone is listening to right now, because that's what I do on my show. I have those people on my show to talk about all the things that we wish we knew when we were first starting out in practice. Am I, so. am I that transparent? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So where can people find you online? Where can people find medical justice online? And actually tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, so it's med- It's simple, medicaljustice.com. It's one word, medicaljustice.com. You can always call us, 877-MEDJUST, M-E-D-J-U-S-T. Info at medicaljustice.com. We are obsessive about answering emails. And we're easy to get uh, in touch with. Also, we offer free initial medical legal consultation. So if you have a problem with a difficult patient, a request for records, a data bank issue, I I could go on and on. Just go online, look at our calendar. You can get a, a spot. It's not designed to answer everything. It's just designed to give you an appetizer. But uh, because people trust us, um, we are the first call, in this case, uh, the first web interaction that a lot of doctors have. And our podcast, yes, we have a podcast. First, we have a weekly e-blast that goes out. It goes out to approximately 60,000 healthcare professionals. It ranges, topic, the topics range from a crazy medical legal event, and then we talk about that event afterwards, lessons learned. Or it could talk about timely things in the medical space that may be somewhat controversial. So, for example, recently we had a person who's an expert in brain death talk about revisiting the criteria for brain death 50 years after it was first implemented and why today, for example, you could be declared brain dead in one state and not brain dead in another state. How did that happen? How do we fix that? That's an example of some of the podcasts that uh, we put out. So I'm, I'm always a fan of fellow medical podcasters. I think you're onto something, uh, Brad, and I appreciate having the opportunity to spend some time with you. Hope we can do it again. I hope so too. Yeah, I learned a ton. It was a lot of fun. And thanks for coming on the show. See ya. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.